Hello and welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here and we're so glad that you're here. We use our mojo to really become greater leaders. Now, let's get started by listening to something good. Oh, I feel good. I knew that. If you're a leader with managers reporting to you, I want to ask you a few questions to ask yourself. Does your leadership team work seamlessly together? Are they focused and organized? Do they function well or fight each other? Do they communicate effectively or are they cloaked with confusion? Do they make decisions efficiently and effectively? Are they hiring, training, and keeping the best talent? If someone leaves, do you have an A player waiting on the bench? Well, if you can't answer yes to all of the above, then perhaps I can help you and your team. I help leadership teams work together harmoniously and achieve greater business results. If you want a, a free assessment and a discussion, just email me, steve at managermojo.com. Tell me you'd like to, to chat for a little bit and we'll schedule a call. Thank you. That's steve at managermojo.com. Welcome everyone to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here, and I am thrilled to introduce my special guest today. My guest is Mr. Alan Gannett. Now, Alan is the author of the brand new book called The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Now, Alan is the founder and CEO of TrackMaven, a software analytics firm, whose clients have included Microsoft, Marriott, Saks Fifth Avenue, Home Depot, Aetna, Honda, GE, and many others. He's, uh, in addition to being an author, he's also been on the 30 Under 30 list for both Inc. Magazine and Forbes. Alan, welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to talk about the mojo. <laughs> awesome. We're glad to, to talk about it as well. We're going to have fun with your book. But before we begin on the book, why don't you share with our listeners what fun thing that you've been up to lately outside of work? Oh, my God. I've been – so I have a crazy four-and-a-half-year-old corgi who uh, is definitely the master of my house. And uh, <laughs> I've decided I'm going to get him a little brother – and so I've currently been investigating um, what type of little brother I should get him. And so I'm currently thinking a Bernie's Mountain Dog. I think Big and Little is a good juxtaposition, but we'll see. <laughs> Sounds fun. And I, I know that, uh, that you will enjoy both of them. <laughs> Alan, uh, your book, The Creative Curve, is really uh, an excellent uh, I guess a guide, if you will, it's a practical guide for those of us that are in business that often struggle with the fact that we don't really uh, believe that we're very creative. And you've sought to eliminate that uh, by your research. Uh, in, uh, tell us uh, just a little bit about your background and what got you interested in really uh, discovering uh, that there are uh, patterns to creativity. 
Yeah, so my um, my job is I run a company called TrackMaven. It's a big data marketing analytics company. So what we do is we work with a lot of big brands. I think NBA, Saks Fifth Avenue, you know, worked with Marriott, GE, Aetna, and all these brands. And we help them. We look at the data from their marketing programs. We try and find the patterns. What stories are working? What audiences are resonating? What are the trends in that data? And how can it inform our creativity? Now. I've always been someone who's addicted to patterns. Like as a kid, I was constantly reverse engineering things and trying to figure things out. And the thing that I realized was, you know, I've always been a big reader and I've read a lot of memoirs and stories from, um, you know, creative geniuses and these great creatives we look up to. And when you read the stories from these great creatives, they're not the stories of luck. They're not the stories of people popping out of the womb with all this amazing creative talent. They're usually the stories of a lot of thoughtful hard work, not just hard work, but thoughtful hard work. And so I saw this, and I was juxtaposing this with, you know, I was meeting with marketers and creatives and all these people, and I kept hearing this motif of, well, you know, I'm just not that creative. I'm just not that uh, innovative. I'm not blank. And the thing is, I realized there's this huge um, disparity between what the science tells us about creativity, which is that it's a nurturable skill, and what people believe. And so the book really came out of this frustration of just seeing people not believe in themselves enough. And so that's what spiraled into the book. And the book is meant to be a um, practical argument for showing that science has shown us actually again and again that creativity is a nurturable skill and also explaining how you can actually nurture it. So I interviewed about 25 living creative greats. So these are, you know, billionaires like David Rubenstein, you know, Alexis Ohanian, the co-founder of Reddit, um, Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo who did Dear Evan Hansen, La La Land, and The Greatest Showman. And what I do is I take patterns from those interviews and I explain what those patterns were and how you could do that in your own creative development. Well, I, I think it's fascinating. And I, I love the way that uh, you not only went about it in uh, interviewing people, you also used uh, historical uh, figures in the past like Benjamin Franklin and how he uh, became what we know today. Uh, and so it's, very, it's fascinating to me that uh, you, you found this pattern that we all go through. Uh, and you said that uh, in the book you go through it in detail, but I think it'd be helpful for people to uh, just know what were the, the four stages that we go through, the four-step process that you identified in the book. Yeah, so in the book I call it the four laws of the creative curve. And what it is, I found that there's four things in particular that there was such a clear consensus on. All of these creators I interviewed, they did these four things. Some consciously, sub-subconsciously. So what I did is I explained these four things and the science behind why they work. So the first of the four things was consumption. There was a huge, you know, you know, when we talk about creativity and creators, we usually talk about them in contrast to consumers. You know, there's some people who just create all this stuff, and the rest of us are just consumers. Well, one of the things that was most interesting was that these great creators are also some of the biggest consumers. They're constantly consuming information about their narrow vertical, about their narrow niche. The second law is that of imitation. You know, so many times we talk about creativity in terms of originality, creating things that are novel, creating things that are radically new. But these great creatives, 
they actually focus a lot on creating things that are familiar, but that right blend of familiar and novel. And to do that, what they do is they actually focus on imitation. What is the structure, the formulas, the sort of bounding box of great creative works so that then they can iterate within that box? The third thing was creative communities. And I describe in the book four different types of people that all these creators had in their creative community that they built around themselves. And the fourth and final one is um, data-driven iterations. You know, we talk so much about creators as there's a sort of myth of like a writer going off into like the forest and coming back with the great American novel finished. But over and over again, even in these fields that you wouldn't expect it, like, um, you know, food or music or movies, there's actually a huge amount of data collection, a huge amount of systemization, a huge amount of process that goes into listening to your audience as part of the creative process. And that was one of the things that really distinguished these great creators with these aspiring creators. Aspiring creators overly rely on themselves. These great creators spend a lot of time trying to listen and understand if their audience will like something. Because ultimately, that's who they're creating for. Well, absolutely. And uh, it's fascinating to really uh, study how people did this. My favorite example in the book was McCartney uh, writing yesterday. Uh, If you don't mind, just share briefly a little bit about that story and, uh, you know, basically how he created such an iconic song. Yeah, so the Paul McCartney story is so interesting because there's this famous tale that, you know, one day he woke up with the melody for the song Yesterday in a dream. He literally dreamed it. And the reason why this is so amazing is that Yesterday went on to become the most recorded song in history. But here's the thing. You know, we talk about this as an example of sort of mystical creativity, but actually there's a lot more at work here than really meets the eye. So, for example, Paul McCartney literally spent um, his entire childhood, his teenage years, his adult years, surrounded by and ingesting music. I mean, he literally played in a cover band when he was young. He was always, always, always surrounded by music. And that starts to make sense. Of course, he would dream about music. That's all the stuff that was racking around his brain. Those were the dots in his brain that his brain wanted to connect. You know, um, you, for example, being in the sort of management and leadership world, that's probably what you daydream would think about. Um, Paul McCartney doesn't because that's not what's in his brain. The second thing is that we know that Paul McCartney, like most great creatives, always knew, well, imitation is a big part of creativity. You know, he talks about in interviews how, um, you know, they were trying to replicate Roy Orbison songs, those sort of poppy song structures, and he was aware of these things, these ways that, you know, pieces of successful creative work often had a lot of familiarity with other things. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, when you look at Paul McCartney, Well, the story is actually a lot different than what first meets the eye. I mean, he literally dreamed six notes. That's impressive, but it then took him 20 months to actually finish the song. This isn't the story of him waking up with a fully formed song. No, this is 20 months of grueling, iterative work, step-by-step, process-by-process. He had to find other people to get advice from, collaborate with. There was a whole process to actually getting yesterday from that small initial spark to completion. And so this story that we look at as this example of sort of magical creativity is actually a great example of creativity being pretty systematic and pretty intentional. Isn't it interesting that uh, I I think oftentimes people want to 
really make it easier than it really is. You, you have to work at it in order to be creative. Uh, things you nailed just, it. it. You just don't, it just doesn't come automatically. Well, that's one of the problems is that a lot of this stuff out there around the sort of inspiration theory of creativity and all this stuff, a lot of it serves as an excuse. You know, we look at people like Paul McCartney, we look at people like Mozart, we say, well, it was easy for them. So if it's not easy for me, why should I try? Right. But that's really an excuse not to try. Because the truth is, when you actually look at the story of someone like Mozart, it's not the story of something just being super easy. He started practicing when he was three years old. He literally practiced three hours every day, every day, with some of the best music teachers in all of Europe. By the way, under the conditional love of a helicopter dad, who really wanted him to become this world's next greatest musician. So, like, that's not the story of him popping out of the womb with this amazing <laughs> musical talent. That's not what it actually was. It, it, it's, it's so true, and I know. Uh, in, in you mentioned me and my uh, my desire for business. Uh, the the reality is, uh, it started at such a young age for me. I was fascinated with business, and I, I absolutely went through the stages that you define here. In that, I consumed every bit of information about different businesses that I could could possibly consume. And I was fascinated by it because it was interesting to me. And uh, so I understand how businesses work differently than a lot of people do because I'm not dependent upon just one uh, teaching uh, at one university. Uh, I, I don't have to look at one book and say, oh, well, that's the only way to do it. And I, I think that people just give up too easily. And yet you, uh, you used other examples. Uh, you, used, uh, you, you talked about the Harry Potter series and J.K. Rowling. Uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful stories at, at how you, you had gone about that. And I think from business, uh, Alan, a lot of us in business, uh, we're all almost mystified, I think, at times by people in the marketing world. Uh, that we depend on them to do all of the creativity, but they can't do it without really good input from clients. Isn't that correct? A hundred percent. I mean, you always need to be listening. You always need to be understanding. You always need to understand, you know, where does something fit in that balance of consumer preference? What is that thing that's going to get it to give that little novel twist to really get people excited about it? And I ultimately think creativity is one of these things that we tend to talk about only in certain fields, like marketing or arts or any of these mm -hmm. things. But mm -hmm. really, I think creativity is in everything. I think if you're in business, you're in the creative field, very much so. And I think it's really important for people to internalize that and realize that there's a whole you know, science to this craft of creativity. It's not just something that you either have or you don't, because that's a cop-out. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that way of describing it. I think it is totally a cop out. Uh, in the book, you go into great detail uh, about creative communities, uh, and you talked about community itself as probably being one of the most overlooked. And I happen to agree with that uh, wholeheartedly because I, I do see value there. If you don't mind, uh, talk a little bit more about uh, community and what does that really mean. Because sometimes yeah, people so, get confused. So creativity is one of these things that it's actually a social phenomenon. Because in order for something to be creative, it has to be labeled creative by people. It's a subjective assessment. 
And so that inherently has a problem. If people are a huge element of what gets labeled creative or not, well, if you want to be creative, you have to engage with the world around you. So what I talk about in the book is that when I interviewed these creatives, there was different people um, none of these creatives were these sort of solo singular people who never interacted with the world around them. In fact, all of them had tons of people around them from collaborators to teachers to promoters, all these different people. And so one of my favorite examples in the book is I talk about how in their creative communities, these creative geniuses all have what I call a prominent promoter. This is someone who already has reputation, who already has credibility, who lends you their credibility so that other people are actually willing to take a look at your creative work. And you see this in every field. You see this with startups. They have advisors and investors. With music, you have opening acts, right? Rascal Flatts had Taylor Swift as an opening act. Taylor Swift had Shawn Mendes as an opening act. Now Shawn Mendes is headlining tours, and he has opening acts. So we sort of pass on. In academics, for example, you usually have senior researchers and junior researchers. There's this way that we pass on credibility. And so, for example, there's this fascinating study that compared scientists that won the Nobel Prize later in their career to scientists who didn't. The biggest thing that drove the difference was that, okay, when you go back to their 20s, they're credited with more papers. But, 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 you may see that and say, oh, well, they're more productive. Actually, what it was, was that they were more likely working with older researchers who were willing to give them credit. And that credit is so important to being labeled creative. That visibility, that awareness, that reputation, and this is part of the why, this is part of the reason why you've seen a lot of creative industries so much sort of structural racism, sexism, whateverism, because it's so important to get other people further up in their careers to lend you their credibility. And so that's actually one of the most pivotal elements of creativity. Yeah, I, I love it, and uh, it's great examples for us in business all day, every day. And uh, one other th area that I'd like to touch on if, uh, uh, about the book and just uh, my thoughts, uh, you talk about the fourth uh, stage as iteration, and this is where you're, you're making changes and you're trying different things. But uh, so many people in business, for example, they get, they get locked into just one way of doing things and one way of looking things. They are so, uh, so, it's so difficult for them to face change. What would be uh, maybe a word of encouragement you can give to people to actually go through different iterations? So this is one of those things that, you know, when you look at these great creatives over and over again, they have these highly iterative processes. And I think the way you have to reframe your creative process is think about it as you're in pursuit. You're in pursuit of creating audience preference. You want your audience to like what you're doing. You want them to really love it. And if that's your goal, well then listening to your audience just becomes part of the process. You have to do that iterative process. And I had this sort of like meta experience, you know, writing a book where you know, I'm writing a book and you, you, when you write a chapter in a book, oh, that was pretty good. And then you start sending it to people. And you send it to, you know, usually you have, you know, friends who are sort of signed up, so to speak, as readers, and you have an editor, and you have maybe a research assistant, and you get feedback back, and you're like, oh, shit, I guess this kind of sucks. <laughs> and um, you, you start working on it, and you start realizing as you do it that that feedback becomes essential to the process, because you see what it's actually able to do 
right? Your work goes from terrible to good because it's so important to actually get that feedback. If you're trying to create something from an audience, you darn well better listen to your audience. Uh, I love that. Uh, it's, it's really uh, brilliant for us to put it in that term. I, I think you did a great job of calling it pursuit. And I think sometimes we think we've already arrived at the destination and really are not asking the right questions. So that, that is outstanding. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, now, Ellen, I know that uh, people are going to want to know more about your work and the things that you're doing. Uh, why don't you share how people could connect with you and learn more? Yeah, so the best way to connect with me would be for the book is go to thecreativecurve.com. Have the book trailer reviews, some resources, all that sort of good stuff. And then personally, it's allen.xyz. So it's A-L-L-E-N dot X-Y-Z. And there's my newsletter, my blog, all sorts of good stuff. Oh, that's awesome. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, and as, as we uh, kind of wrap it up here, one of the things we like to do at, at, at Manager Mojo is I like for people to have action items. And I'm curious as to what would be your recommended one or two action items that you would give to people today so that they could really ignite uh, their own creativity, that they could really challenge themselves to learn this creative curve and what it is. Turn off Twitter, turn off Facebook. Go very, very, very deep in your niche. I want you to read everything, watch every video, do everything you can to consume as much content as narrowly as you can. The more narrow you go, the more successful you'll be at that narrow thing, and all of a sudden you'll start having these amazing creative ideas. That's the thing that you can do. Start doing it today, and you'll start seeing the results soon enough. Wow. That is a phenomenal recommendation uh, for all of us. Uh, Alan, I, I want to thank you so much for your wisdom. Uh, I, I love the book. I highly recommend listeners that you go get your own copy of this book and study it and be honest with yourself and, and really say, okay, it, I can do this and I will do it and follow the steps that Alan has given us. Uh, I promise you, you're going to discover creativity in yourself that you know that never existed before, and uh, you'll feel good about it. Uh, am I right in that, Alan? I, I absolutely agree. You know, there's a there's an amazing human ability to get better at things, and creativity is definitely one of those. Absolutely. Uh, my guest today has been Alan Gannett. He is the author of The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Alan, uh, congratulations on the book. We wish you uh, all the success in the world with it. And thank you for sharing with our audience here at Manager Mojo. Thanks. Bye.